So most of you Soul Sisters are familiar with a triathlon, but maybe not all of you. So when I speak about the Ironman, I'm specifically talking about a branded race that is long distance. It covers, and I'm going to be a little bit ambidextrous in my measurement descriptions for both the Americans and Canadians listening. It is a race that is 2.4 miles or 3.8K swimming, followed immediately by 180K cycling or 112 miles and finishing up with a marathon which is 26.2 miles or 42 kilometers um so that's a that's a long day and i'm not sure what the average time is um but i can tell you the average marathon times but anyway i i can't tell you an average time but i can say that to be an ironman you have to finish in under 17 hours so that's continuous exercise um at my best, I averaged around 11 hours for my Ironman races, um, and they were really fun, and for eight years, I was completely obsessed with the Ironman, um, and that race gave me a lot of things. It's the reason I moved to Canada. Uh, it's definitely, <laughs> and that's, I met my husband um, before we, we, either of us had done an Ironman, so it gave me my husband, my new life in Canada, and a whole whack of confidence, because as soon as you do or think about doing your first Ironman, there's always this thought, could I get to Kona? And Kona is the Ironman World Championships in Kona, Hawaii. And I did get to Kona. I qualified in my my fourth um, Ironman race. I almost qualified in my third, which I'm going to tell the story about that because I came within five minutes of qualifying for Kona, had no idea I was that good. And I probably would have qualified that year if I'd listened to my friend Eric, who told me he thought I was going to qualify. But I thought, no way, I'm not that fast. I'm not that kind of athlete. And it just really shows that what you think matters. Um, and it was the worst race and the greatest vacation I think I've ever had. So I'm going to talk a lot about training, the mental aspect, obviously, of the Ironman, um, some fun stories, and just go back and tell you why for eight years I drank the Kool-Aid and I loved the Ironman. So stay tuned for more of that. I just thought of something. I want to make sure that anyone listening to this podcast knows what I loved best about the long distance of an Ironman quite simply is if you go fast, you're going to fail. You're not going to make it. In fact, one of the things, oh, there was some something like if you go half an hour faster on the bike, you're going to go an hour slower on the run of the marathon. And all I know is it's about pacing yourself. So really, the Ironman is like one super long training day. And unless you're one of the very few that are, you know, trying to get to Kona or are a professional, you're not going fast. In fact, I did get to Kona and I, I wasn't going fast until, well, my marathon was a, a fairly fast time. Um, and then, of course, my last two miles were really fast of the run. But the rest of the day, I had a mantra that was, hurry up, now slow down. And I, I believed in that so much that I had it taped to my bicycle. So hurry up, now slow down. Um, conflicting advice, but really just kind of saying, pace yourself. So if you like to go fast, then I encourage you to do sprint triathlons. But if you like to go slow and just be out all day doing your thing, then I highly recommend the Ironman. When I think about how I trained for the Ironman, I realize 
the eight Ironman races that I did were probably the only events that I truly trained properly for. And I think that's mostly because before I'd ever done one, I was so afraid of the distance. Now, even though I, I do feel I trained properly, I will say that before my first Ironman, I had a really bad bicycle accident. Um, I shattered my scapula and I, I really should have gotten surgery. I had two doctors tell me I needed surgery, but then I finally got a third opinion that said I could get by without having surgery. So what that meant is that I could still do the Ironman. Um, and three months before the Ironman, I was not, I, that's when it happened. I wasn't able to swim uh, unless I floated or did like a one-arm stroke. I was able to, uh, ironically, I was able to run before I could do anything else, which is pretty uh, impactful, but they didn't want me on my bike because I might have fallen off and then made my scapula even worse. So anyway, when I got to the Ironman race, the first one, my biggest concern was would I make it through the swim cutoff? And that was a, an honest concern because I'm not the strongest swimmer. I am. I'm a pretty good swimmer. Um, I've done a lot of swimming, but I've never been fast. So then taking the ability to train out, um, then I'd be even slower. But the momentum of just doing my first Ironman and of course the washing machine that is the Lake Placid, um, Mirror Lake, I guess, is, is the reason I was able to, to finish that first swim with, with no issue about making the swim cut off. And I never had an issue after that. Anyway, I digress. So I was trained, um, and yet I sort of wasn't trained because I had to take a real big break after breaking my scapula. But Overall, I was always trained when I got to the Ironman event, and I think that's why it was really something I was very good at from the beginning and why I absolutely loved it. I think there's something really special about the first time you do something, and my first Ironman was in 2005 in Lake Placid, New York, which is one of the most beautiful places, really, I think I've ever been. Uh, so picturesque and just a lovely place to do an Ironman, which it's nice when you like the setting because you're out there for, you know, anywhere from the fastest, which would be eight hours, to the slowest, which is 17 hours. So it's, it's a long day. It's really nice to enjoy the scenery. Um, and my first Ironman there was absolutely lovely. My second Ironman was in Penticton, uh, out in British Columbia, and that is also just a stunning place to do an event. A very different look, but also just, just gorgeous. And then I went back to Lake Placid in 2007. And going to Lake Placid was always this amazing, uh, well, it became an amazing reunion because all of my friends from New York City were also doing the race. So I came down from Nova Scotia, they came up, and I had the race of my life. And for some reason, I wasn't paying attention to the time. So I distinctly remember when I came around the finish, the last 100 meters, looking up and seeing the finish clock, I screamed. I startled the guy that was in front of me, who then sprinted to the line. Um, and I normally try to pass people right up to the line, but I was just shocked. I couldn't believe the time I saw on the clock. And as it turned out, um, and I think I mentioned this before, I was five minutes away from qualifying for the Kona Ironman World Championships. And I was three minutes, it was two or three minutes away from being on the podium because I came in sixth place and they give awards to the top five athletes. So that was just mind boggling that I got that close. And the really neat thing is when I realized I was within five minutes and, and my race that year was 11 hours and 18 minutes. So the idea that I was five minutes away from qualifying, it just, um, it changed what I thought. And I realized if I trained and I really focused that I could probably get to Kona. So I spent one year completely obsessed with the Ironman. I would tell 
anyone that would, you know, ask me what I was up to, what I was training for. And I remember having a conversation with myself um, inside, wasn't outside. And I thought, you know, is it too, is it too like ego to tell people I'm trying to get to Kona? Can, you know, can I say that? Dare I say that? And I just decided that, yeah, I could say I was, was training for it. And even if I didn't qualify, because the thing about qualifying for Kona is it comes down to that day and who you're racing. And it's not like, um, my other really proud accomplishment is that I've run under three hours in the marathon. The Ironman isn't like that. It's not like if I run, you know, if my race is X amount of time, I'm definitely going to get into Kona. I mean, it's likely, but it's not guaranteed. So I decided that for that one year, I would really live the fact that I was close enough that I had the right to try to believe I was good enough to possibly get to Kona. And it just felt amazing. It felt very empowering. And I thought, you know, if I don't qualify, then, I, then I'll stop saying I'm trying to qualify. But for one year, I'm in the hunt and I'm good enough to be in the hunt. And like I said, I told everyone, I told everyone, like at the grocery store, at the, well, maybe they didn't ask me, but you, you get the idea. I really did tell the whole world that I wanted to go to Kona. And that is a hard thing to do, to tell people your goals because you feel so vulnerable. But I'll tell you what I discovered. I wasn't actually vulnerable. I had so much support. Once people knew what I was trying to attain, they wanted to help me instead of being, I don't know, judgmental that I'd set such a big goal. Hello, Soul Sisters. Today, I'm speaking with Tim Chestnut. Does that name sound familiar? Well, it should. He's the race, race director of Epic Canadian, but he's also my husband. And during the pandemic, we're both working from home, and it was really easy to force this podcast guest to sit down and interview with me. So we actually have a pretty fun story to tell. He doesn't know any of the questions I'm going to ask him because I like to just be one one take Stacy and he's over there he's right in front of me folks and he's literally laughing but he can't talk because I'm trying to do something new and use a microphone and it's pointing towards me um I actually was in the middle of what I was saying but I'm looking at my husband and he's laughing so Tim is there something that you wanted to say uh hello everyone that's it this this man oh my god he's trying to pretend like he's a man of few words but that is not true right Tim exactly I hate him, but I love him. Actually, what I wanted to talk about is how the Ironman has given me so much in my life. And one of the things it's it's given me, quite frankly, is my husband. I know a lot of folks don't know how this Southern sounding woman ended up in Nova Scotia as your race director for Soul Sisters Women's Race. Well, I was living in New York City and I was training for an Ironman triathlon. Actually, I was training for triathlons. I hadn't made it to the Ironman yet. And I happened to meet my husband in Lake Placid, New York. So Tim, you didn't know I was going to ask you to share this story, but I'd like our listeners to hear the story of how we met. Honey, tell them. Uh... we were um on the street you were handing out um energize energize it's like a technical mr freezy um and you were trying to get rid of all the ones you had left and you got mad at me because i didn't want to take one because i'd had them inside I'm just going to interrupt. Now tell them the sweet story. Let's not lead with Stacy was mad, okay? Let's tell them the, the long-winded sweet story. Well, that's how it started because you said that I had to take one. I said, no, I had one inside. I really didn't like them. And then you told me that I had to take them because 
they were one of your sponsors and you had to be there giving away until you got rid of them all. And when you're done, then you could go. Okay, so I do want to do a little backstory. Um, I was sponsored by Energize, and I I wanted to be a good good little sponsored athlete. I wasn't like a professional. This was a brand ambassador, effectively. And they had sponsored me. I had this great kit, lots of product, and I wanted to be sponsored the following year. So I went to Lake Placid because I was going to register anyway. And I'll get I'll get Tim to explain why you'd have to go one year in advance. Um, but I had this product, and they were free, and they were cold, and it was a hot July day, and I simply couldn't believe somebody didn't want to take I mean it was it was free and I thought it tasted good okay um so anyway back to Tim um yeah so so then I did take one to to help you out but I thought you looked really you were standing there all in white and I thought you looked really good and that was most of the reason it had nothing to do with the energize it was because you were cute and I have to admit y'all I uh I thought he was pretty foxy too so it's, it's really funny we're looking back 15 um, no, math is hard. This was 17 years ago, and we just both happened to be in Lake Placid, New York, for this Ironman race. And Tim, why were you there? Uh, we were both there to sign up for the following year because you used to have to be there a year in advance to sign up. Wait, they didn't have the internet back then? No, you could sign up online, but but... Uh, you got first preference if you were there and the, there weren't very many races. The popularity was on in the ascendancy and by being there ahead of time and by having been a volunteer at the race, you got to get in line first and uh, have a better chance of getting signed up for the following year. So you didn't have to do all of those things, but if you were there year in advance or if you were a volunteer, you could then stand in a long line and give them several hundred dollars. So it's pretty funny. You know, you hear grandparents say things like, I walked five miles uphill both ways to and from school. And I'm here to tell all you kids that sit at your computer and sign up for a race. It used to be a lot harder, but there also used to be hardly any Ironman races. In fact, Tim and I also traveled to Penticton, Canada, which is, you know, the whole other coast so that we could sign up for Ironman Canada one year before we did the race. So that's how it happened back in the olden days. Now, picking back up, we were in Lake Placid. We met uh, during the race. and Sorry, the race was going on for someone else. It wasn't our race. And we met on the side, uh, basically on the side of the race. Is there any more you want to tell this story or, or is that it? You're not going to tell any more. Oh, y'all, there's so much more to that story. It makes me sad that my husband doesn't want to share it. Well, I tell you what, if you listen to this entire podcast when he's not sitting in front of me, I'll tell you the whole story. So we've just recounted how we met related to an Ironman race. So, Tim, after I decided I really wanted to qualify for Kona, I remember that I dedicated an entire year to the training, but I also remember that you helped me quite a bit. What were some of the things that you, looking back, remember um, advising me to do that you think made a difference in my getting to Kona? Well, I think just stepping back a bit from that, it was the realization that you were only five minutes off a qualifying spot the previous year. That that maybe I don't think you really thought it was possible or uh, that easily achievable until that point. So then it became a real focus for you. And one of the things we did, um, yes, we did have the internet. Uh, It wasn't that long ago. And everyone's uh, everyone's information is online. So I downloaded everyone in your age group. I think there were 250 or something, however many there were. 
and all their performances and then got all their best performances and put them into a spreadsheet so we could figure out where you would be in that list. And it, you really weren't competing with 200 people. There were two people that were so much better. There was no chance you were ever going to catch them. And there were maybe 20 that on a good day could have that spot. If they had a really great day, some had better chances than others, and your chance looked good. And so what's really neat about that, y'all, is I had no idea that at the end of the day, it was really only 20 women. When you think about how big an age group is, because for anyone that doesn't know, um, with the Ironman, unless you're a professional you're, or, or the, one of the best age groupers in the whole wide world, you're not competing to win the race, but you are competing to win your age group. And like Tim said, that might be 250 people in that age group, more or less. Um, and when he went through all the trouble of tracking down those women and figuring out, okay, who am I really competing with? I didn't, I didn't know names, and I didn't even care about the times. I just trusted the information that he found. But what was really neat is, okay, those two that he said I wasn't competing with, uh, no, I wasn't. They were just, they were so fast, faster than I could ever possibly be. And I, I don't mean to ever say diminish a goal or, or say I couldn't compete, but y'all, I couldn't compete. They were basically, I think one of them had actually won races um, outright. So anyway, knowing that it was really only 20 gals and, you know, if everything went perfect that I could be one of those gals that was kind of um well it was really helpful for me because it made this super big goal something that was something that I could chase further so um I kind of cut you off I don't know if there was anything else you wanted to say about tracking them down and kind of knowing who was going to be there that day on on the day it was 20 so we knew where you would be and 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 could kind of mechanically put everybody's races together in a spreadsheet. So I had a really good idea who was going to come out of the water in order of those 20 women. And I could watch their numbers and I could see and check them off along the way. And then they were all on the bike and gone. And the way the course is set up in Lake Placid, there's a couple of times that come into view. So I could watch and see they came by and check them off on the spreadsheet, then go back and download real-time information and update you exactly where you were in relation when you ran by so I could tell you, okay, right now your number, whatever, and this is what you need to be, and this is who's ahead of you. They're two minutes ahead of you. So the neat thing about that is I was basically just having my race and had no idea where I was or what was going on, but poor Tim knew, um, you know, a race that took 11 hours. He knew exactly where I was throughout the day, and I think that might have been, um, instead of informative, I think it would have been a little stressful, and uh, the other thing about that day is it was hands down the worst weather at that point I had ever competed in. Um, I did compete in Boston 2018, which I think was fairly, well, I was going to say it was comparable weather, but it wasn't because it was a lot colder in Boston, but it was super, super cold for July. There was tons of rain and a lot of the professional athletes actually got hypothermia that year. And I remember there was one um, female uh, professional that was just, she was gorgeous and she always raced in very skimpy outfits, which I totally understand. If I'd had that body, I would have also. And I remember her going by wearing a trash bag and I'm kind of laughing about that now. Um, But but the tragic thing is actually she got really cold and she didn't have a good race. And I'm known for completely completely overdressing. And that day I overdressed like I always do. And it turned out to be the best thing I ever did because I was never cold. I never had an issue and I have had hypothermia in races before. So that really worked out. Um, Tim, there was one other thing that it's tough because we're looking back from all these years, but I'm pretty sure it was your idea. Um, There was something else that you had me do um, because I was 
insecure or not insecure. I was nervous about, uh, I knew I didn't have five minutes to spare because I literally missed Kona by five minutes. And I worried, you know, what if I got a flat or what if, what if, what if, what if, and there was something that you had me do that, um, made me very confident. Do you remember what that was? Well, there were two things. Um, one is, um, one of the important, most important things is stay in your mental game. It's an 11 hour day or a 10 hour day or a 12 hour day or however long you're going to be out there. Um, and you, you can't lose mental focus. So you had to have, uh, you were, um, you knew how to change a tire, but you weren't good at changing a tire. And, I knew that in a race before I'd had a flat tire and I got flustered and it was just a sprint triathlon. So what we did was every Friday night when we were set down to watch a show, you would change five back tires and five, five front tires, change them out, inflate them repeatedly. And every time you would get really messy and really dirty and you were really bad at it and you got better and better and you, you never got amazing at it, but you got to the point you just didn't care anymore. It just didn't mean anything. It was like, oh, I just have to change a tire. No big deal. So then we knew if it happened in the race, it would be like, what? I have to change one more? Fine. And it's funny that he's saying I didn't get very good. Now, this might be me just having some rose-colored glasses, but I think I did get quite good. And I don't remember what the time was, but we knew exactly how long it would take me to change a flat tire. And exactly what Tim said. I was not worried if I got a flat, I was going to get a flat and I was going to fix it. And if I got a second flat, I was going to get a second flat and fix it. And I know that I raced with uh, the ability to repair two flat tires. I don't think I had more than that. Um, but that was that was incredibly great for my confidence. So um, I guess the only other thing I wanted to ask Tim about was we loved going to Kona. I mean, I'm jumping ahead that I did get to qualify uh, what was your favorite part about the trip to Kona? Uh, that could be the race. <laughs> I'm, I'm shaking my head. Y'all can't see that. It could be the vacation. But what's something that, looking back and not having the, this question in advance, what was your favorite thing about Kona? I, I think, the, well, we did get to go all around the island. And, and we spent a few weeks there. And we saw the, the green sand and the black sand and the white sand beaches. And that was all really neat. But when we went up to the top of Mauna Kea, and uh, up to where all the observatories are on the top for the sunset and watch the sunset go down and the Milky Way come out and it looks like somebody spilled milk across the sky because it's just so visible from up there in the thin air. Okay, he stole my answer. I was going to say that. Uh, to this day, Tim and I will be watching a TV show, a movie, and there'll be an observatory or there'll be something with really great stars. And we both just instinctively say Mauna Kea. And there was a whole scene in my mind, looking back, where um, not a scene, but a whole memory that, that comes to mind, where we basically got um, hypoxic. And I don't know if Tim got it. I can't remember, but I did because of the high altitude. And he had, we had to wear really big jackets. You know, it's Hawaii, but it was super cold all the way up there. And one of his, the, actually on either side of his face, the jacket had these, these flaps. And I thought they were his ears, or I thought they looked like his ears. And I just laughed and laughed. And to this day, when I think of Mauna Kea, I think of two things. Uh, Tim with those crazy flappy ears and discovering that the Milky Way really is as spectacular as Tim has always tried to tell me. But, you know, looking at it from Nova Scotia, you can see it, but mm, not like Hawaii. So that's it for now. We'll uh, pick back up with some more Ironman topics in just a sec. 
So, Tim, I cut you off, and I think you were actually maybe going to tell us a couple of other things that helped me to get to Kona. Did, was there something else you were going to say? Well, you were always great at the at the sports themselves. The the swimming, the the biking, the the running; those were all great. But where you had the biggest opportunity to pick up speed was on the transitions. So, what we did is every workout we made have two transitions so if it was a long bike day we would set up transition spot in the front yard and you would go down and you'd swim and in your wetsuit and goggles and everything else you'd come up in the front yard strip out get on the bike and go for a six hour bike ride come back to the yard to transition zone two and switch out to your running gear and go run for two minutes so every workout was a swim a bike and a run just sometimes it was a long swim with a short bike and a short run, or sometimes it would be a very short swim, short bike, and a long run. So that was actually Tim's advice, and it's amazing advice, but I do know that I, I didn't really do very well with my transitions despite that. And the Well, maybe I did, actually, you know what, maybe I did okay in the qualifier, but I'm remembering Tim was, um, he was in Kona, and he was a volunteer, and he found a way to be basically behind the, the lines everywhere. And I came out of the water, and in Kona, they have this really amazing, basically, car wash people wash um, where hoses are hanging from the ceiling and you can get all that yucky salt off of you before you go you know basically spend another six to nine hours um, in the very hot Kona sun and the video he took of me I'm literally talking to him and I'm acting like I'm in a shower because I'm very uh, slowly washing all the salt off so maybe the lesson I, don't, I actually don't remember I have no idea if my transitions were well done well uh, when I got my qualifier do you have any idea Tim your transitions were amazing in the qualifier Okay, and here's a little tidbit. I'm going to finish up with this because it's the best thing anyone ever taught me. When it came to the marathon in the Ironman, that was really always going to be my strength. And somebody said something once about if you're going to lose time because you have to go to the bathroom because, you know, it's a long day, do it before you head out on your actual run so it doesn't mess up your marathon time. So that's my tidbit, y'all. When you finish the bike and you're getting ready to go out for the run, don't, you know, to go charging out and then take a two-minute break once the clock has started. Uh-uh. You, you have a long transition, but then you have a faster marathon. And with the exception of when I blew up in Kona and probably my first Ironman marathon, I always ran under four hours um, in the marathon. And it's because I was not wasting time peeing in a porta potty. Oh, and here's another little tidbit. It's very hard, but if you don't have time to spare, because remember, I was hunting down five extra minutes in my Ironman, I learned that you can actually pee while running. Many triathletes know that you can pee on the bike, and that does take a lot of practice. Sometimes it goes bad. Often for a woman, I find it goes bad. But uh, peeing while you're running is is a true challenge but it is possible. Tim, did you have anything else you wanted to add, or did you, you think we should just end it right there on the, the P story? Oh, no, I think there's one more story. So on your qualifier, when you qualified for the World Championship, so it's at Ironman USA in Lake Placid, I'd been tracking all day long, and it was about, you know, whatever, I, I can't remember your exact time, but it's within 20 minutes of the end. And um, or so it's not quite. We're about two miles from the end of the run course. And the, the, we think there are four spots and you're, and I'm counting, and there's the first two are already finished. They finished an hour ago. They were, 
amazing. But then, you know, the third spot. They were amazing. Hold on. The third, well, they were basically pros competing as amateurs. Um, so the third one went by, and then the fourth one came by, and we knew there were four spots, and then you came by about three minutes behind. But it was some, it was some large amount. And, I, and, and you asked me what position you were in. I said, you're in fifth place. Just go ahead, run it in. Six. Six. You were six. Just go ahead, run it in. Six minutes behind. You're not going to make it up, but just in, enjoy the rest of this. So I just want to mention that I was sixth place the year before when I did not qualify. I missed Kona by five minutes, which we've said a lot, and I missed the podium by three minutes. So him telling me sixth place, that's pretty significant because it, it just meant I was out of the hunt. So I told you, just just go ahead and run it in. So <laughs> I uh, my version of, of that part of the story is... I saw the disappointment and, and, you know, you project things when you're in a race. So whether it's rational or not, you, you can judge something. And when he said, just run it in, what I took that to mean was, um, you didn't do it. You know, you're too far off. That's okay. You just, you just run it on in. What that probably was, was a whole lot of layered stuff. He probably was upset for me, worried for me, already going ahead. And, and what would I be like when I found out I was in sixth place a second year in a row? Who knows? But when he said, just run it on in, that to me, how I read that was, he doesn't believe I can, I, I can do this, or he doesn't believe in me, or, or what is he saying? Just run it on in. And for whatever reason, I got mad. But the mad was really, really useful for me because I needed that. I got so mad that my husband didn't believe in me after a whole year of helping me get ready and preparing these stats. And how dare he not believe in me? I can't believe him. And that anger fueled me. And I went past two women uh, to get to the finish line. Now, the tricky part about Lake Placid is the run course is two loops. And for whatever reason, I couldn't see the age on the legs of the two women. So that's the other thing. You're racing one age group, and usually you can see the age, so you know if you're competing with someone or not. So I had no idea, but I did know I passed two women, um, and I was convinced that both of them were in my race. As it turns out, only one of them was in my race. But by passing her before I got to the finish line, I secured my spot to Kona. Um, And so in a crazy way, Tim really did help me by saying, Oh, honey, just just run it on in, because I was like, oh, I'm going to show you. And uh, that's just the boost I needed in that moment. When I look back on the years that I spent doing the Ironman triathlon, I think I got some of the best friends of my entire life while I was training for that. Still have them. That's why I say the best friends of my entire life. Um, And, of course, I, I met and married my husband, and I moved to this beautiful Nova Scotia, uh, Canada. So I think the Ironman really was, it was really special for me. And I just had no idea when I started doing them, how important they would be to me or how easy they'd be to sort of let go. And I think I used to tell people that training for an Ironman is a bit like being on a merry-go-round. When you're on it, it's no big deal. But the minute you step off of it, it's really hard to get back on after that. But I really never had the same drive after Kona. Um, I, I didn't really care. Uh, I, I wasn't trying to qualify because I knew how hard that was. And I also knew how it really wasn't the race for me. It was just far too hot. Um, so I, I don't know. I just didn't. I, I kept doing them because I couldn't let go. But I did finally let go on my eighth Ironman. And it's funny because I have tried to quit the marathon 
over and over. Now, I have quit it. I've quit it for, I don't know, a couple of months, certainly never a year, and I've always meant it in the moment. But when it comes to Iron Man, I distinctly remember I finished it at Iron Man Canada, which has always been one of my absolute favorite race courses. And for the entire marathon, I had a mantra that you got to be my age to know this. There was a TV show when I was growing up in the 70s called Eight is Enough. And I literally spent the entire marathon uh, saying to myself, eight is enough, eight is enough, eight is enough. And something that I've always meant to do and certainly never done is I've retired. I stopped doing Ironman races on the fastest one I've ever done. I mean, that's beautiful. If I had stopped uh, at my fastest marathon, let's see, I would have stopped, oh, 50 marathons ago. So <laughs> I, I don't know. There's something special about the Ironman. So I've really enjoyed talking to you all about it. And um, I recommend if you if you really want to test yourself or try something new, go for it because there's a tagline with the Ironman and it's anything is possible. And you know what? Anything is possible. Oh my gosh, I was just thinking, you know, Tim told you the story about how with two miles left to go in the race, he told me to just run it on in and, and I got mad and getting mad made me run a heck of a lot faster, which is not really that surprising because for whatever reason, I don't know, there's a saying about the, the horse smelling the hay in the barn. Almost every marathon I've done, my last mile is my fastest. And in this example, my last two miles were my fastest miles of the whole marathon, uh, fueled by being mad and, and wanting to get to Kona. But the, the funny thing, I, I told you that I ended up only passing one woman that mattered, uh, not two women that mattered. But the one woman I passed, I then ended up talking to the very next day um, in line at Starbucks. And this is just one of the many times that I have put my foot in my mouth, and I really didn't mean to. But I'm in line, and it was such a long line. Uh, for everybody in Canada, the line was like a Tim Hortons line. It was so long. But it was Starbucks because uh, there's no Tim Hortons in Lake Placid. Anyway, we're in line, and, you know, folks just talk to each other, especially because this is probably the only instance besides something like Boston Marathon where everybody wears their shirt. It's ridiculous. Um, you have your finisher shirt on. So I'm talking to the gal um, and, you know, just being cordial. And she asked me about my race. And I didn't think anything of it. I was on cloud nine. I was telling anybody that wanted to hear how I was going to Conan. And I told her that exact story about the last two miles. And, you know, well, you guys have already heard it, so I don't need to tell the story again. Um, and she looks at me and she goes, Stacy. Now that got my attention because we had not exchanged names. We were just, we were just in line getting our coffee at Starbucks. And she goes, Stacy, that was me. Let me tell you what my husband said. My husband told me, you're going to Kona. Just run it on in. You're good. So I just ran it on in and then you passed me. Uh, I don't remember any more or any real specifics except that I was horrified because all I could think is she she knew who I was, that she thought I knew who she was and, and that I was telling that story and I wasn't. And, and I don't know what I said. I'm, I'm sure I said something to try to make her feel better, but I felt like an ass, as you can imagine. Um, and what, what in the world... 
I can't believe of all the people to be in line. Uh, I was in line behind her. But this has the best story ending. Um, It turns out that the girls, you know, Tim had mentioned that two of the girls in my age group were really good. I mean, they were so good. They had already won races. And in fact, they had already secured their spots to Kona. So the gal didn't know it when we were in line at Starbucks. But she did get a roll down spot and she did go to Kona. So it totally worked out. And I can't help but think she had a good Kona. And I bet she always had a last fast couple of miles. So that's the other story. I just wanted to make sure that I told you. So Soul Sisters, I did say that if you'd stick around till the end of the podcast, I'd share a little bit more about that story of how Tim and I met. We have a peachy version. We have a G-rated version and um, PG-13, and I felt like he just defaulted to the G version. So here's a little bit more about that story. We both did go to Lake Placid because we were going to be signing up for the next year, and we were on vacation, and there's something about when you're on vacation. You're more open to things, meeting new people, and all I know is I talked to a lot of people that weekend, and for some reason when I was talking to him, I ended up talking to him the longest. Now, complete stranger, I'm talking to him about that energized popsicle he's talking to me about how he doesn't want to try it but usually I don't know I'd speak to someone for maybe 30 seconds to 60 seconds but we were talking a long time it was I mean I don't know it was five six seven minutes and that is a long time when you're usually just kind of talking saying hi being cordial and moving on so um I don't know, maybe in that seventh minute, I realized we're flirting, okay? I wasn't trying to flirt, but he's cute, and Tim Chestnut has probably the nicest smile you're ever going to see, and he's smiling at me, and he he looks at me, and he says, and I'm going to embarrass him, he says, have you ever kissed a complete stranger? in the middle of a crowded street. Now, that street was the race course, right? So the whole race is going on around us. I mean, we're not literally in the middle of the race, but we are adjacent to the race. And I look at him, and I'm here to tell you, I was living in New York City. This man's from Nova Scotia, Canada. He has this cute Canadian accent. I know it's funny that I'm saying accent, but trust me, he had an accent. And I'm thinking... This cheesy line would never work on me in New York City. But again, I'm on vacation, and I'm in a different kind of mood. And I look, and I kind of cock my head, and I think, oh, what the hell? So I say, nope, but it doesn't mean I wouldn't. And I leaned in, and I gave him a kiss. That's right. I kissed a complete stranger, but he asked me for it. And anyway, that was his entire game. That was all he was going to do. I mean, I, he, he wasn't a player. He, he wasn't, and he didn't think it through, and he didn't have any plan for after I kissed him. So then I looked at him, and I was like, so are we going to date or what? Now, I'm living in New York City. He's living in Elmsdale, Nova Scotia, and I'm asking him if we're going to date. I think he must have been like, what the heck? 
Um, and we did date. In fact, I had a half Ironman two weeks later. Uh, note to self, I signed up for my first Ironman before I had even done a half Ironman. Um, and I went up to, to do this race in New Hampshire, Timberman. It used to be the best half iron. I don't think it exists anymore. And I went there and I did the race, went with my girlfriend, Arna, and Tim came down from Nova Scotia. I didn't know at that time that Canadians will drive and it was no problem. That was probably only a 12-hour drive and you know so he didn't mind he came on down he cheered me on at my race I had an amazing first half iron and then we went on vacation for two weeks he wasn't a stranger at that point because we had been talking for for two weeks um, prior to that on the phone every day and I have to say if you're doing long distance there's something really neat you have to decide that you're really going to try to get to know the other person. If you're if you're dating in person, then you can just wait until the date. But we had two weeks to really get to know each other, and then we went on vacation and um, together, uh, which was an amazing vacation. And two years later, um, I live in Canada, and, and we've now been married for. 13 it'll be 14 years this uh this summer so really worked out well that that he asked me that question so that's the rest of the story that I wanted to tell y'all <laughs>